Welcome to Working for Women, the independent women's forum podcast, where we are changing the conversation about women and public policy for the better. Well, hello, everyone. I'm Ashley Carter, director at the Independent Women's Forum and your host for today's podcast. Joining me today is Vicki Alger. Vicki is a research fellow at the Independent Institute in Oakland, California. She also holds senior fellowships at the Fraser Institute, headquartered in Vancouver, British Columbia, and, of course, the Independent Women's Forum here in Washington, D.C. Uh, she's also president and CEO of Vicki Murray and Associates in Scottsdale, Arizona. Vicki's research focuses on education reforms that promote a competitive education marketplace and increase parents' control over their children's education. She's the author of more than 40 education policy studies, co-author of and co-author of Lean Together, an agenda for smarter government, stronger communities, and more opportunities for women that was previously released by Independent Women's Forum. Alger has advised the U.S. Department of Education on public school choice and higher education reform. She has also advised education policymakers in nearly 40 states and England, provided expert testimony before state legislative education committees, and served on two national accountability task forces. Last but not least, least Vicki has written a brand new book, Failure, the Federal Miseducation of America's Children, which is set to be released next month. And that is the topic of today's conversation. We'll be discussing failure. The book explains how the relationship among the federal government, the state, and parents with regard to education is increasingly dysfunctional and how parental control over children's education has gained impressive momentum in recent years at the state level. Meanwhile, the states have been increasingly willing to relinquish sovereignty over education in exchange for more federal dollars. Failure and Vicki's book helps bring clarity to these issues by examining whether students and the country are better off after 30 years with the Department of Education and suggests alternatives to the ever-expanding federal education bureaucracy. Vicki, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Ashley. It's my pleasure. Oh, we, I love what you do, and I'm a highly passionate about education and our education, educational system living here in D.C. It's a topic that's consistently in the newspaper and has become a model of sorts for the school choice movement, especially here in D.C. Uh, reading over your book, and I love that your title, Miseducation, is even spelled incorrectly. <laughs> Um, I'd love to know, what was your inspiration behind writing this book? Well, as we know, the Department of Education opened its doors in 1980, exactly the same day when President Reagan was giving an address and called it, uh, you know, the great bureaucratic boondoggle. So we were made a whole lot of promises back in 1980 uh, about what a creating a cabinet-level Department of Education would do for 
uh, we Amer- for us Americans. And I thought, okay, I started this project really back in 2009, and I thought, well, 2010 will be the 30th anniversary. So are we better off three decades later or not? So I dug into the research because there were a whole lot of promises, and chief among them were more efficient administration of some 300 federal education programs at a lower cost, and students would be doing better, all without compromising local control of education. So I took a a look at those promises and others, and every single one came up with a promise made, promise unkept. In a nutshell, the only thing that has gone up has been spending. If you look at student achievement on the nation's report card, whether you're looking at students who are 9 years old, 13 years old, or 17 years old, the, the scores from the early 70s to now are essentially flat. Yet the spending has just skyrocketed. So what we're doing is we're spending more and getting about the same results. I say we need to follow the Constitution, restore local control and funding decisions um, back with the states and actually with parents, because it doesn't get more local than a parent empowered with options over their children's education. I completely, completely agree. And we're looking at this and we're looking with the new um, the new accountability standards and several of the new things coming down uh, the pike here. And we really see how parents can really truly be empowered when they have the information at their fingertips. And looking at your book, you laid the book out into three parts. And the book is a very easy read, whether you are a policy, education policy advocate or a novice, like just a regular parent. Uh, it's very easy read and to learn about for uh, both, both sections alike. Um, the first part, you talk about the history of the Department of Education, which you know, this whole section could just be an entire book in and of itself, if you ask me. And then you, in part two, you talk about current results to date. And then part three, you talk about how to return the federal government back into its intended role within the Constitution. Can you broadly uh, talk about the three sections, how you came to uh, section those out, and what each is about? Well, I wanted to see, uh, first and foremost, how did we get where we are today? Because I, I think no matter where you fall on the political spectrum, nobody would say, yay, education in the United States of America is where we want it to be. So how did we begin? And what's one of the most interesting things to me um, was that the Department of Education we have now, it's not our first one. We first had a, uh, a bureau, uh, you know, Department of Education back in 1867. And leading up to that, because so many people talk about, well, George Washington talked about the importance of education, Jefferson, Adams. And yes, that's true, but there's a very distinct, so many things had to happen before we got to, oh, yes, 
a Department of Education like Europe having ministries of education is a really good idea for the United States of America. Here's the fundamental, what I would consider a seismic shift in thinking. Up in the, you know, the early part of the Republic, even when, you know, presidents were saying education is so important, which is true, nobody disagrees with that, every one of those presidents said, we really do need to have a voice in education because it is a national interest. But here's the difference. Every one of those presidents said, we cannot do it absent an amendment to the Constitution. Flash forward past the, you know, past the Civil War era, and all of a sudden states' rights to the Constitution were not held in the esteem that it was. All of a sudden you start hearing about, um, you know, traditionally education has been a local matter, or, you know, you hear language about partnerships and all that, and that's language that we still use today. You know, the word education does not appear once in our Constitution. So it's very interesting going back through the history and reading through all the debates. And there's been a resurgence um, over the past decade um, in calls for abolishing the Department of Education. And the arguments that we're hearing today um, really are almost verbatim what they were back in in the years leading up to 1867, when we did have the first Department of Education passed, um, enacted. And um, it's basically boils down to why does Washington, D.C. know best? And that's really what the debate hinges around. Do folks in Washington, D.C. know better than parents of, you know, parents? And my answer is no. I've seen no evidence of it. Um, and there's, they're not running a single program out of Washington, D.C. through the Department of Education <clears throat> that would not be, I think, better handled through the states. Now, I'm not saying every state's going to do what we'd want or what we would think would be the best, but you bring that control back where it constitutionally belongs. And parents and taxpayers can have a much greater influence over their elected officials to bring policy even more local, make it even more local, which is with parents. And that's where it has to belong. So first I wanted to see the history and the debates. And my goodness, there's nothing new under the sun. Very similar. And then it's not just enough to have complaints. Um, I, I like to look for, well, what can we do? Because it seems such a, a, very, a huge endeavor to, well, how do we dismantle the U.S. Department of Education? And once I started getting down into the weeds it's really not that hard. Practically, it's not that hard. Politically, that's another story, of course. But if you look at all the programs, they, they typically run through a grant, an annual appropriation cycle or a grant cycle. Okay, as these things retire, you just sunset them, and that funding stays in the states. If you want to have that program continue, have it continue on in the states. Let voters decide if that's a program worth having. And I think you get much better policy that way. It's much more localized and much more tailored to the unique needs of states and communities within those states. So I wanted to go through the nuts and bolts. That's the, that's the, you know, the second section, the nuts and bolts of it. But I also wanted to look at, you know, what are other countries doing? And what's interesting to me, you look at one of the, the best performing countries in the world, it's Canada. 
And is it because they have a Ministry of Education? No, of course not. They don't have one. Ottawa does not control what goes on in the provinces. Education is very local in Canada. I'm not saying they're perfect, but they are doing a comparatively bang-up job without a a centralized Ministry of Education. And if you look at other countries that do have very centralized systems, they, they do have ministries and they have a national curriculum. But those countries are smaller than some states in the U.S. I think we have to really stand back again and ask, why does Washington know best for a country as large and diverse as the United States? And then, you know, finally, I wanted to wrap up with um, not just how we, we do it, but let's look forward. What programs are happening in the states right now? And my personal favorite is... Um, would be education savings account programs, or ESAs. I'm very proud that my home state of Arizona was the first state in 2011 to enact such a program. They basically work like health savings accounts. Parents who don't prefer uh, a, a public school education for their child simply apply to the state education agency, and 90% of what the state would have sent to the school district or charter school, it goes into a uh, a dedicated account for that child. And parents get a dedicated use debit card and they buy, you know, the educational services and supplies that they need and they submit quarterly expense reports for verification before more, you know, before more funding is dispersed. So, and that's where we're having huge success. We have a 100% satisfaction uh, level among participating parents and that's because they can take those funds and customize it. Private school tuition, online courses, test preparation, special needs, therapies, all sorts of things like that. And children are doing better. That's the direction I think we need to be going in. I really like that. It really takes the power out of the hands of the legislators and puts it back into uh, the power back into the hands of the parents where it is and should belong. So that's absolutely is a great idea. Um, I want to and I like the fact that you don't have special interests. Exactly. Exactly. We're, we're getting all of that out, those extra needed hands out of the way and getting to the root of the problem and getting what the goal is, what we all want, everybody, all children, to have a great education. So that's a great it, idea. Absolutely. And it, it is, and it's working. And one of the... Um, one of the core myths that uh, parental choice programs like educational savings accounts or tuition tax credits or vouchers or a- any other form of parental choice like that shows is that you can do more with less once you take out the bureaucracy and the special interests. And that's something that really, um, obviously it costs money to educate children, but it doesn't cost as much as it does now when you're not paying for all that. You know, this is the time of year. It's end of school year. And drive by, anyone anywhere can drive by their neighborhood school. And you're going to see sports fields, auditoria, um, all sorts of very expensive facilities. Well, do we really need that? If parents want to pay for that, fine. You can go ahead and pay for that, and you're going to be paying a little more. Parents who don't want that prefer maybe their local, you know, uh, you know, uh, their Pop Warner or their Little League or something, something else like that. 
you can pay for that separately. But there's more than enough money to educate every child in the United States and meet his or her needs. If we put, you know, great teachers first, paying them first, paying for the supplies first, and what, and it's, you know, the, um, you know, the various materials that children need. If we focus on children first, everything else will fall into place. And that's what these programs are showing. Fantastic. Uh, now, as the title of your book indicates, failure, um, it makes no effort to sugarcoat that your findings that the Department of Education has failed to live up to its promises. And as you know, there's been a shift more and more from a state-controlled education to it being more federally controlled and governments fall within that. Um, in your book, you discuss the ebb and flow of the federal education regime, as you call it. And I mm -hmm. love that you call it that. <laughs> um, most recently, we've seen with initiatives such as Common Core and uh, the Every Student Succeeds Act, ESSA, uh, for those of you who might know, not know, um, several groups calling for more federal oversight of schools. How do you address this, and what are some of the things we can do for states and schools to have more autonomy? I think the most important, what we have to start with is um, we do have to have a sense of history and this really it, it hit home for me just taking the time to review all of these programs um, even before the U.S. Department of Education with in 1965 and as part of the um, LBJ's war on poverty uh, started with all, all of these federal programs one of them by 1984, we're going to eliminate literacy. And there was much rejoicing. Yay. So all this money goes into that. Then we were going to, um, then with uh, Bush 1 and, and Clinton, goals 2000. Well, by the year 2000, we're going to have a 90% high school graduation rate. And we're going to be leaders in math and global leaders in math and science. Yay. There's much rejoicing again. Then under Bush 2, we had the no, no Child Left Behind. And by 2014, we're going to have 100% proficiency for all students. Yay! None of those things have come true. And so all of these, there's again, there's nothing new under the sun. Common Core um, made a lot of promises that chill, all children in America are going to be college and career ready. Whatever the heck that means, um, as far as we know, they define college ready as barely skating by two-year community college remediation classes. Clearly, um, the focus is not on what's best for the student. It's what's politically palatable um, and acceptable to the interested adults. So looking at these programs, we've heard it all before. They have no track record of of working and they cost so much money. What we do see work is you have to focus on, for example, teacher quality. The number one in school factor for student success is a great teacher. Now we have umpteen teacher quality federal programs. They don't work because it's so politicized about what quality is you just need 
great teachers defined as, first and foremost, people who know their subject. Secondly, people who genuinely care for their students and get great training, know the scientific pedagogies. And those are the folks we should be taking. We shouldn't be paying bureaucrats. We should be paying great teachers. If you invest where we should, which is with great teachers, and not everybody's a great teacher, by the way. Not everybody is up to the task, so we should be able to fire. And it's not a whole lot of teachers. It's maybe at any given school, it's maybe one or two. And more likely one, because the the second one is not so great, with genuine uh, professional development, not just one of these sort of drive-by, sit in the classroom, be talked at all day, really great training. We can have an amazing teaching workforce, and that would would really benefit students, not another federal program. We have to get local in the classroom and not just – recruit, but we have to train and we, we have to make sure that we reward our, our best and brightest in the classroom. No, that's great. And I truly, uh, I truly believe what you're saying is, is the truth because, you know, we have, we have teachers and one bad apple can spoil the whole basket, but it is mm-hmm. the majority of our teachers really are trying hard and very are very passionate about what they do. Uh, they really do Absolutely. want the children and the children in their classrooms to succeed. Um, and you know, it was interesting that you talked about the history of the Department of Ed. I just wanted to tell our readers, for anyone interested in the book, uh, going through part one, it was there is a timeline of the uh, department and history of how it became about. Uh, in the front of this chapter. It really gives a visual aspect to the readers, where we've been and where we're set to go. I just wanted to know, because it gave me a different perspective, did you do that because you used to be a teacher? Um, I did used to be a teacher. Um, I like timelines. And, you know, my um, I would joke with my husband, when we're going through various things, I was like, you know, would you please give me a timeline? And, and, and it's great. It helps me, helps me organize things. And it's sort of a, at a glance, when did some of these really critical developments happen? So I, I like timelines because it, it, it's an all-in-one visual. And then you can go learn, you can learn more. But you know what you're looking for. Because um, so many things happen. And particularly during an election year, we hear all these things, all these grand promises. Well, the timeline, in my opinion, helps with, okay, wait a minute. We tried that back in, you know, 1965. We've been doing this since. And I want people to be able to see that. So not just when we're in an election year, but if you're getting ready to go to your school board meeting, you're getting ready to meet with um, your children's teachers or, my, you know, your taxpayer and schools are asking for another bond, we're hearing all these programs, and so many of these things have been tried, and we're just rebranding, repackaging. Let's go back, see what the real critical points are, just see how expansive um, the history of education in the United States is, and let's come up with some better solutions. Agreed. And, you know, it was interesting, uh, We within this history timeline, and you're talking about 
uh, different administrations. And it seems to be administrations across the board. They seem to be changing things here and there. And then when they can't get what they want legislatively, they resort to executive orders. And you have a whole mm-hmm. section where you talk about executive orders. Can you talk about some of those executive orders that you've come across? Oh, sure. And I think the thing that's so – that I, many of us, I know, I, I certainly did coming coming to this book when I first started, was we assume that um, Democrats love, you know, love a Department of Education, love centralized education, Republicans don't. It's, it's not that clear-cut at all. I mean, you have examples on both sides of the aisle for those positions. And with the executive orders, um, just look at the accountability movement that we've certainly, we're in our second decade of that. Um, it started with, it, it started in, in earnest with Bush 1 and Clinton, the Clinton administration. But even under, it, it really started taking off with, a Bush, you know, the Bush too. And we're going to mandate all of these quote unquote accountability uh, metrics, whether it's AYP or, you know, special orders, because it's, you, you write these grand plan, these grand accountability plans, but then the devil's in the details. You can either executive order, we're going to mandate something, or under the Obama administration, I call it sort of race to the top, race to the waiver. Um, states being able to waiver out if they, you know, if if they basically were being bribed with their own our, our own money. And certainly, most recently under the Obama administration, um, all of these mandates under the guise of you know quote unquote guidance um, with you know the the transgender bathroom issue. Um, basically, there every administration, I don't care if it's on the right or on the left, has an agenda. And if you step back and take a longer view, this is what I'm seeing. About every 10 years, we're going to have a seismic shift. Um, let's start with No Child Left Behind. That was uh, one into effect in 2003. Okay, so states had already had their, you know, their, their standards tests in place. So in order to get more of our own money back, we have to sign on to this new program. Now, that takes years to work out the details and finally get it, everything implemented. So we get No Child Left Behind implemented. People aren't happy with it. It sounded great, but then we see it's not working. And so schools and have spent... All of the schools and states have spent all of this money retraining, printing new tests, so on and so forth, and all the upheaval, let's face it, that students are enduring. Oops, now we have a new president, a new administration. That's not working. Let's go off to the, you know, now we're on to Common Core, and we're on to the Every Student Succeeds Act. So about every 10 years, schools are going through massive upheaval, the impact of students is immeasurable, and what's the result? We're not seeing we're seeing seeing a flat line when it comes to student achievement. So I think all this we could do a lot better if we just left education where constitutionally belongs is in the states. That's it. I, I, we wouldn't have this constant evil of evil. 
<laughs> no, and you're completely right. And uh, whether you're on the left or the right, I do think that, you know, an excellent education is the main goal across the board. Uh, what are some of yes. your recommendations on how to get there? I think first and foremost, we, we have to, one of the biggest criticisms and of having a Department of Education, whether we're talking, you know, back in 1866 leading up to 1867, um, or when we're talking about the late 70s in the years immediately preceding um, our making a cabinet-level distinct U.S. Department of Education, was that if we centralize education in that way, leaving aside the question of whether or not Washington knows best, if we centralize it, you're going to have all sorts of special interests coming, um, coming to bear and exerting undue influence. And so the agendas of the adults are going to prevail, not necessarily, you know, not what's best for students. And that was one of the main concerns. In fact, even the New York Times, which is no bastion of conservative thinking, at the time called it, wow, we now have the nation's school board. That's what this Department of Education is going to be. And lo and behold, there it is. Um, so I think that when we see when we see that uh, there's really nothing new, we saw this coming and there are just better ways to do it. Once we get it out of the States and again, get it back to the States. And again, you look at what, no matter where you live, you may not be happy with what your, your state lawmakers do during any given session. But when was the last time you were able to just, Pick up the phone and call up. Ask how many people actually, who is the Secretary of Education? <laughs> ask most people that. Most people would know, you know, who their people who are active would know who their state lawmakers are, at least, you know, a representative or a senator. Um, they're going to know who their local people are. And you could call and you could say, hey, I'm a voter, I'm a constituent, I, you know, I don't like this. They can go to their school board and have control over textbooks, curricula. Well, they used to be able to, uh, pre-Common Core. Um, but that's how you get things done. And the way education proves for everybody is, my goodness, for example, here we are, here I am in Arizona. For, and, you know, we, we tend to be on the forefront of we'll, we'll try almost any new uh, parental choice policy. We'll, we'll be the first ones out the gate. But then we look at our neighbor, Nevada. Well, they took what we did and they made it even better. Or we're looking at what's going on in Tennessee or Missouri or Florida. And it's really exciting. And that's how we should improve. What's, what's actually working in the states and how can we replicate it in a way that's going to work for our local communities and students? That's a better way. Right. It's you're, you're completely right. It's all about getting back to basics and making it local. Um, and here's something that, that, that would have worked, and it was in the original legislation for the U.S. Department of Education. Here's a common sense thing. Every year before there is a reauthorization or, or, or an appropriation, we have to have a performance audit of every single education program. And if it works, your funding's continued. If it's not working or not needed, it's sunsetted. 
that was one of the first things to get stripped out of the enabling legislation. Something like that is what we should be doing in the states. <laughs> that would make perfect sense, really putting money to programs that work and eliminating those that are failed, failed attempts at trying uh, something new. Um, well, I think we're at the end of our program for today. Vicki, are there any final thoughts that you'd like to leave listeners with? I think that people should people shouldn't be intimidated by being empowered over their own education. We don't need a big bureaucracy. People in D.C. whom we've never met, likely won't ever meet, don't know better. Um, I would say trust parents, trust locally elected officials like your school board members and your state lawmakers, and that's the way to bring back education. The one thing we should be avoiding is a one-size-fits-all mentality. It's it doesn't work. It hasn't worked. We have to make education as flexible, responsive, and effective at each, at the individual student level. And that's how we're going to improve education for the individual and as our, for our country as a whole. Yes, and I guess in the end we can uh, make education great again. <laughs> yes, um, absolutely. <laughs> Last but not least, uh, Vicki, where can we find your book for readers who are interested in picking up a copy? Well, thank you. Just go to www.independent.org, and it will be right there under the book section. It's called Failure, the Miseducation of America's Children. Well, I think we're at the end of our podcast. I want to thank you, Vicki, for taking time out of your day to talk about this great new book coming out next month. Uh, listeners, you've heard it here. Uh, you can pick up Vicki's book at the failure, the miseducation of the federal miseducation of America's children will be released next month. You can pick it up at independent.org or it's also available at amazon.com. Vicki, thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking to you. Oh, thank you, Ashley. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please give it a thumbs up, share it on social media, or stop by iwf.org for similar content.